Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, June 11th, 2010. This week, episode 170 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, it's fun to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. And also, we have the intrepid environmental Annie Koalecki back at the controls. Good afternoon. Hello, Annie. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We have an interview with Dr. Richard Corsi, professor at the University of Texas at Austin and president of Indoor Air 2011. We'll have our halftime. I've got an update from the uh, Florida Department of Professional Regulation on the Florida licensing law. We'll go back to our interview with Dr. Corsi. We'll do the roundup. We'll bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and uh, we'll take it from there. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check out Cliff's blog. I think you'll like it at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N, Com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact us, of course, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547, and as most listeners do, you can download the show by going to the iaqradio.com website. Just follow the link that says go to the show. You can also listen streaming straight from our website. Or, of course, you can always download from iTunes. Don't forget we have ABIH, Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC Renewal Credits. Just send me an email and request a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at 
iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Congratulations to Quick Draw John Lapotere of Microshield Environmental Services for his answer of January 1st, 1927, as the date the Cumberland River in Nashville, Tennessee, reached 56.2 feet at the Nashville gauge. That was the highest recorded flood water in that city. Uh, John beat other people to the punch by texting his answer in during the show. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, June 11th, 2010. The subject matter for this week's trivia question comes from the field of American history. Who was Charles Joseph Whitman, and what event was he infamous for? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, today's guest is uh, Dr. Richard Corsi. He's a Ph.D. and a professional engineer. He is uh, the E.C.H. Bantel Professor of Professional Practice in the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Corsi's research focuses on sources of indoor air pollution, the physics and chemistry of indoor air, human exposure to indoor air pollutants, and control of indoor air pollutants. His work has been supported by a wide range of sponsors. He's also been the principal investigator on over 60 research projects and uh, a, lot of, a lot of different types of projects. Dr. Corsi has studied a wide range of sources of air pollution from dishwashers to paint to microcomputers to moth crystals and methamphetamine residual to motor vehicle interiors, et cetera, et cetera. And we're happy to have him on the show. And I think, Cliff, you had some uh, intro music for him. We do. It's time to think about it. It's time to sound an alarm. We can't be waiting too long. Polluting air is so wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, the clean air, it's what I need air. I need some clean air, I can't breathe. Oh, won't you give me, give me clean air? It's what I need air. I need some clean air, I can't breathe. All right, uh, good day, Dr. Corsi. Do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome to IAQ Radio. Thanks for joining us. Um, I've got a quest- question about your position there, the ECH Bantel Professor of Professional Practice in the Department of Civil Architectural and Environmental Engineering. It's a mouthful at, at U of T. What's uh, the Bantel Professor? So the uh, Bantel Professor is an endowed professorship. We have a lot of those at the university for faculty that uh, are far along in their careers. And uh, it's sort of a recognition of a professor who uh, believes in uh, the integration of academic research and practice. Uh, okay, great. And what, what other uh, things do you do at the university? Can you tell us a little bit about your position at the university? 
Sure, yeah. So I teach uh, courses, uh, a course called Fluid Mechanics, which is how basically air and water move in the environment. And I teach graduate courses on indoor air quality and human exposure, inhalation exposure to air pollution. And I'm also the director of a very unique uh, PhD program uh, entitled Indoor Environmental Science and Engineering. It's a program that uh, involves students from disciplines across campus. Uh, what, what and the, by the way, I know the answer to your trivia question. Oh, right. but I won't say it. It's actually somebody already beat you <laughs> yeah, to yeah, it. We, we got oh, it. no. <laughs> yeah, they got yeah, it already. Quick draw, John Quick Lapo, draw, John. He's on it again. Um, well, what, could you tell us a little bit more about the Indoor Environmental Science and Engineering Program? It sounds like a, a – I mean, we talk to a lot of people around the country. That sounds like a fairly unique program. I'm, I'm wondering, is it something that you got started there at the university, or was it existing when you got there? Yeah, it was something that – no, it's, uh, it's something that uh, I started with some colleagues, and uh, – we um, had this vision, and we submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation, and they funded our program. And it's a pretty unique program in that it deals strictly with indoor environments, indoor environmental quality, but it brings together Ph.D. students from disciplines as wide-ranging as mechanical and architectural engineering, economics, psychology, um, community and regional planning, and, and even we even have students from our advertising department. So it's a it's an attempt to get students together and faculty together from a large number of disciplines to add something to the equation that we've been missing over the years, I think, in our field. And it's it's a pretty unique um, program in that we don't just expect students to get into the laboratory and spend four years doing research and then come out and tell the world what they've done. We, we have sort of this holistic program where students are required to engage in public outreach to... Uh, interact with practitioners and researchers to mentor high school students, and so they get uh, they get a little more holistic education in the process. What what type of projects do they work on, and where where do you get these projects? Uh, the project ideas are largely generated by the students in collaboration with their professors, but we have a very active external advisory board who meets with us every year and and uh, gives us ideas on what they think are some of the most important issues coming down the pipeline. And as an example, uh, our students in community and regional planning have a great interest in, in weatherization, you know, sort of energy conservation, weatherization of existing homes, but not just on the energy aspects of it, but what the indoor air quality implications might be uh, uh, with respect to how we weatherize homes. It's just one example. We have other students that are studying decontamination of buildings, effective decontamination of buildings. Uh, we have some students that are studying the health effects of, uh, of indoor air pollutants. So it's sort of all over the map on what the students are studying, but the common thread is always the indoor environment, exposures in the indoor environment, sources of pollution in the indoor environment. Doctor, can you provide some um, or tell the listeners about what happens to this information that's developed by the students? Um, mm -hmm. Sure. Um, as I mentioned uh, a little while ago, our students are involved in a lot of public outreach projects. We have workshops at the university, a couple of workshops every year that are open to the public. Uh, one of our workshops drew about 550 uh, local attendees from the, from the city of Austin. Uh, we work with local elementary schools uh, trying to improve indoor air quality or helping them improve indoor air quality in their own schools. We, we work with high school teachers trying to integrate aspects of indoor air quality into the science curriculum in high schools. Our students have developed websites 
We recently worked with the Children's Environmental Health Institute uh, in Texas who's trying to develop a kind of a rating system for hotel chains in terms of uh, uh, chains that do a good job of uh, minimizing children's exposure to toxic chemicals in hotels. Uh, and as I mentioned, some of our students are working in the weatherization area and have actually been asked by the U.S. EPA to review a lot of materials that are used in uh, weatherization training courses and specifically to incorporate uh, aspects of indoor air quality into those materials. And that's material that I think is very valuable to practitioners. Okay. Those are just some examples. They're great examples, and I think it's a unique program. Are you aware of any other programs around the country that are similar? No, I don't think there's any other program around the world that's similar to ours, especially in terms of the interdisciplinary nature and the and the real um, um, attempt to reach out to the real world. I assume this is part of the reason, and I don't know, maybe uh, I'm getting a, one of our listeners, if you could, let me know if we got a little echo on Dr. Corsi's uh, sound there. I'm, I'm hearing a little echo in my ear. Maybe maybe the phone's a little too close to your mouth or something like that, but we'll, I think it's audible, but it's uh, it's a little bit of an echo. I'm just curious, um, w- with respect to this program, do you think that's a part of the reason that you've been named the president of the Indoor Air 2011 conference? I do. Yeah, I think that uh, we had to submit a proposal to the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate to compete to host Indoor Air 2011, and certainly our, our student base and our program here was an important part of that proposal. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Indoor Air 2011 is and, and what the the series of Indoor Air conferences are? Yeah, sure. Um, the Indoor Air Conference series uh, started in 1978, um, and it's a triennial conference that meets every three years. There's been 11 of them to date. It's a highly international conference. Typical conferences draw attendees from 45 or more countries that all come together in one location uh, to share what's going on in their countries from research to policy to practice. And a typical conference has about 1,200 attendees. Last two were in Beijing in 2005 and Copenhagen in 2008. And in 2011, the conference will be in in Austin. But the, the whole idea behind the conference is to bring as many people together from around the world that are doing work on indoor air quality, to share their research results, to share the types of policies that are being developed in their countries, to share common practices in their countries, um, and to and to and to also make bonds. You know, to to meet people from other countries and and and, and grow those relationships. So that's what indoor air is all about. It's really a fantastic conference. And I understand this year you are really trying to increase the focus on getting the researchers and the practitioners uh, working together, talking more together, finding out what their mutual needs are. Absolutely. Um, normally, there you know there are, I would say, twenty five percent of the attendees, and that's a rough estimate, are practitioners to these conferences and. Oftentimes, they're practitioners that want to hear about cutting-edge research. They want to know what's coming down the pipeline and what they're going to have to deal with in the future. And we want to expand that base in 2011 to include more opportunities for practitioners. So we are going to be offering a whole range of continuing education units for practitioners who who attend the conference. We are going to have practitioner-oriented tutorials throughout the conference. and uh, kind of a special event and something that I'm uh, really excited about is we're going to have a group of practitioners, and that group is forming right now, 
it's going to come up with a list of something like the 12 or 15 or 20 most pressing questions that practitioners have to deal with that they have difficulty answering. And we're going to try to get that list well in advance of the conference and find the right researchers around the world that can help answer some of those questions and have forums at the conference to address those questions, get researchers, practitioners, policymakers together uh, so that we can say, yes, we have answers to these questions. No, we absolutely have no clue on these questions, and we need to do more work to figure that one out, and maybe some that are somewhere in the middle. You know, we can answer part of the question, but not the whole question. So hopefully this this will be a, a sort of a seminal event in really trying to get researchers and practitioners and policymakers together to set an agenda for the future in terms of what we really need to learn, what we're missing at this time. Um, part of the outreach, obviously, to the practitioner community is you coming on here today. I'm, I'm curious, what other methods are you thinking of using to help get more practitioners to this event? Well, I, I just mentioned, I think, three pretty important ones. Um, the Indoor Air Quality Association, who I know you're familiar with, um, yes. uh, we've been speaking with them, and they're pretty excited about the possibility of, of having many of their members attend the conference as well. Um, and we'll be working with them, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and with other practitioner organizations. So we've been working with the USCPA and, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to develop workshops and sessions that are of, you know, particular interest to practitioners. Workshops on things like uh, damp buildings and building decontamination issues, uh, um, dust sampling uh, in buildings, and those types of things. So there's this whole wonderful group of practitioners it's uh, headed up by uh, don weeks who i think you might know as well joe absolutely uh, and don is the uh, uh co-technical chair for practice for the conference and he's got this wonderful group of practitioners who are formulating workshops and sessions and lunchtime debate topics and tutorials that are of specific interest to practitioners great great well let's let's get a little more back into um into your research and um I'm curious, you know, well, I guess, I guess I can tie the two together. You know, you obviously have been attending these conferences over the years. What type of research results that have been presented at previous conferences, either by you or someone else, would you like to see some of the practitioners out there in the field become more familiar with? That's a great question, and there's probably a, a whole spectrum of answers to that question. I'll give you uh, a couple of examples. Um, one is that we, over time, I think we've learned that uh, certain pollutants that we routine, routinely sample for when we go into homes or offices or schools when there are complaints are probably not the root causes of the complaints. And uh, we may have been looking for, especially in terms of irritation, the wrong group of chemicals. And over time, we've, it's become more clear that there are certain chemicals that we should be looking for that we don't routinely look for. And that's the kind of information that comes out of these conferences. That, there are these sort of emerging pollutants that we realize, gee, we've been missing this. You know, polar volatile organic compounds may be much more irritating to the upper respiratory system, and we haven't been sampling for the right polar compounds, that type of thing. That's one example. Another example uh, relates to ozonation of buildings. You know, there's a, a cottage industry in our country, I'll call it that, of, of uh, groups that come in and they'll ozonate buildings to try to decontaminate buildings from mold and that type of thing. And and it may be in some instances effective at, uh, at killing mold, but at the same time ozone causes lots of other problems in buildings. 
uh, that causes the generation of lots of organic acids that can degrade things. It causes uh, the formation of some pollutants that are quite irritating to people in homes. And that kind of information was presented at the first time ever at an indoor air conference, and it's become sort of a major theme of many of our conferences, is the, the, the sort of secondary effects of building contamination. Um, there's a lot of research presented at these conferences on air purification technologies um, and whether or not they're really effective at removing pollutants, and some air purification technologies actually have some adverse consequences associated with them that many people are not aware of, and so that type of research is presented at these conferences. Those are just three examples that come to mind. Good examples. And one of the things that um, I've been, you know, I looked over some of your research, and, and I noticed you do a lot of research with respect to uh, volatile organic compounds, VOCs, and different water sources in homes. And it's something that I had not seen much discussion of in the past, and I'm just curious if you could, you know, talk to our listeners a little bit about, um, you know, first, I guess, why you were interested in that, what, you know, what led to your interest in doing so much research on this issue, and where the largest problem, I guess, um, that you have found in your research would be, you know, what would it be the dishwasher, would it be the washing machine, would it be the, the, the tap water, etc.? Yeah, my group has done a lot of research on this topic, and, and the focus is really on the transfer of chemicals from water that comes into the home through you know kitchen sink to shower to washing machine to dishwasher. It contains chemicals, and all water contains some chemicals, whether it's radon or gasoline constituents from contaminated groundwater or uh, chlorinated byproducts from chlorination of drinking water. And we've studied the extent to which those chemicals are released from different water uses, different water temperatures, different types of shower heads, and that type of thing. One of the, the, the most interesting projects was a PhD student I had about 10 years ago who was studying um, how chlorine in dishwasher detergent and chlorine in laundry detergents and dishwater, uh, dishwasher disinfectants how it chemically reacts with uh, soiled clothing and how it chemically reacts with food stuff on plates and dishwashers. And, and he found these amazing results in terms of really large amounts of chloroform uh, and some other chlorinated organic compounds that form from chemistry that actually occurs in those appliances. And he determined the amount of those chlorinated organics that actually off-gas through the vent in the dishwasher or through the casing of the washing machine and did some risk assessments and actually showed that for a typical family of four, if we're worried about chloroform actually getting into our body, just the chemistry that happens in a dishwasher is roughly equal to and sometimes greater than the amount of chloroform that we ingest uh, from drinking water that's been chlorinated. And nobody had ever sort of thought of dishwashers and chemistry that happens in dishwashers as a major pathway for chloroform into our bodies. It turns out that it's a very substantial pathway when you look at the other pathway we've always considered, which is simply drinking water that's been chlorinated. How, what, how did you measure the, the chloroform? I mean, we, I, I, I talked to Dr. Wah before the show on my ride down, and, and uh, he pulled out his threshold limit value book and told me that the, the TLV for chloroform is about 10, I think it's 10 parts per million if I recall correctly. How did you measure that, and what kind of numbers did you come up with? So, the, you know, first of all, the threshold limit values tend to be for sort of acute exposures as opposed to long-term, you know, uh, effects on people. And, and for so, healthy people, it's, yeah. Uh, so you, 
yeah, you rarely, 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 rarely would ever see concentrations like 10 parts per million in any home. So we're talking about typically on the order of about a thousand times less than that. So okay. 10 part per billion, 20 part per billion, 30 part per billion. And chloroform can be effectively measured using using sorbents, either uh, 10x or other sorbents. We use 10x, and so we just basically draw a sample through a 10x tube. In the case of the dishwashers, we were also taking samples not just of the air that was being removed from the, uh, the vent on the front of the dishwasher, but we, were, we had modified the dishwasher so we could take small amounts of liquid samples from the wash water at the bottom of the dishwasher. So we could actually see at the same time as you're generating chloroform in the water, and then that, that hot water is sprayed on all the dishes and the chloroform is released, you've got the formation in the water as well as increases in chloroform concentrations in the headspace of the dishwasher uh, that then basically comes out to, to endure air through the vent. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, yeah we sample on 10x. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I'm glad you pointed out that that's, you know, that threshold limit value is... Um, is for normally healthy people working in, in um, typically in occupational settings and that oftentimes people doing indoor environmental quality surveys will, you know, look at much lower levels than the TLVs, but I just thought it, it gave us some kind of number for comparison anyway. Cliff? Well, doctor, you used yeah, the term head... very typical. Yeah, you introduced the term headspace, and I'd, I'd like you yeah. to kind of define it for the listeners, if you would. Okay. Um Headspace, I guess, is just um, uh, a fancy term that refers to air uh, adjacent to either water or a solid source of pollution that's inside of an enclosed system. So, for example, we could talk about the headspace of a washing machine as simply being the air inside the washing machine that's in contact with the water in the washing machine. So it's just kind of a, a nerdy way, I guess, of saying air adjacent to, to a source. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because I was thinking when I first read it, breathing zone, then when I heard your explanation, uh, I was a little confused as well. So that, that's, uh, that's good to know. All right, uh, let's, let's move on. We've got um, a, a couple of other interesting topics that we talked about. One of them was the, the difference between ingestion of a chemical and inhalation of a chemical. We just talked about that briefly with respect to the uh, chemicals that, you know, we find in water. Can you tell us, is inhalation always, you know, oftentimes people think that inhalation is the worst route because, you know, we, we inhale things and it can immediately be absorbed through the lungs into the bloodstream. But um, I know when I was talking to you before, you said that's not necessarily always the case. Can you explain why? Sure. Um, and, and you're correct. It's not always the case. So there are three major routes by which chemicals get into our body. There's ingestion, as you mentioned, inhalation, as you mentioned, and then dermal uptake through the skin. And in fact, there's growing evidence that a lot of air pollution actually gets into our body through our skin and, and not through our respiratory system, or, or, or a substantial amount gets through our skin as well. But in terms of inhalation and ingestion, um, you know, our body is this, has this sort of amazing defense mechanism. Soluble gases, for example, things like formaldehyde and sulfur dioxide, are removed in our respiratory system before they can get to a region where they're effectively transferred to the blood. And as you know, a lot of particles are removed in our respiratory system, and we're able to work them out before they do much damage. So just because we breathe in a chemical doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to get into our blood when we inhale it, That's number one. Number two is when we ingest chemicals, 
and they're absorbed to the GI tract, the first place they go in our body when they get in our blood is straight to the liver. When we inhale chemicals, they don't go straight to the liver. They are transferred through our blood to all the different organs in our body, including the liver. So when we ingest chemicals, they go straight to the liver. And if the chemical we inhale is the primary concern, then the liver has an immediate opportunity to break that chemical down before it can circulate through the body and do damage to other organs. If the chemical that we inhale is not the primary concern, but it's metabolite or what it's broken down to by the liver ends up being the primary concern, then ingestion may actually be a lot worse because we're putting the, the chemical straight into the liver where it transforms it to something bad that then circulates through our system. So it really depends a lot on the nature of the chemical and whether the chemical itself is the primary concern or what it's broken down to is the primary concern. It's, you know, the body's an amazingly complicated system, and uh, it's much more complicated than any engineered system I can think of as, a, you know, as an engineer. Uh, we just don't design things as complicated as the human body. But it, it, it's not correct to say that inhalation is always the worst type of exposure. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Okay. Well, that's a great explanation of it, and I appreciate that. And I think at this point we're going to take a, a quick break for our halftime, thank our sponsors, and then we'll bring you right back. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research, Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. Non-products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Good day, Dr. Wild. Do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. All right, Dater. Good day. How are you, sir? I'm on a speakerphone. Does that sound all right? Yeah, it's not too bad, Dater. Not too bad. Um, any qu comments or questions on the first half? Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, it is... Uh, we have these wonderful instruments today, like GC and a mass spec uh, gas chromatograph, and behind it is a mass spectrometer, which, yeah, with which we can measure down to parts per trillion if we really want it. And I am sometimes a little bit weary when we talk about parts per billion of literally anything. 
And, I mean, we are, <clears throat> on a daily basis, indoors or outdoors, when I go downtown, when I play tennis, uh, I'm, I'm exposed to probably five, 600 different chemicals in the parts per billion range. And I don't really worry about it. Um, I live by myself, so I don't use my dishwasher very often. I think I should use it once every two months that it doesn't dry out in there. But um, and I think I'm also happy at times. I, I know that my house is not very well built, and all the indoor air pollution goes to the outdoor air pollution through nooks and crannies, which I really don't want, but the more I look at it, the better off I am, I get some more fresher air into my house. I don't smoke and I don't cook a lot over here. But if I just look at at, at the chemicals, um, uh, when I when I heat uh, olive oil or butter or or uh, any of that, or I I, I make a steak, um, I mean there are hundreds hundreds of chemicals coming off. That's why a steak smells so good. You know, when I peel an orange, we know that is an orange. When I eat a banana, I know it's a banana because I smell it. I can smell coffee and tea. So I, I think we got to be careful to point at one of those constituents and say, that is the bad guy, and we got to go after this fellow. Now, we mentioned formaldehyde, our body, uh, due to our biotransformations, also known as metabolism, uh, produces formaldehyde. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing we can do about it. So, uh, yeah, we, we, I, I think we got to be very careful. I'm not against it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm forward to look into those issues. But I think with the interpretation of results, or say that this, this person was exposed to one part per billion of XYZ, yeah, I, 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 I'm careful. Okay. And I have a ton of question marks behind it. All right. Well, let's, let's uh, get Dr. Corsi back on the line and see. Um, I noticed that he didn't say there was uh, necessarily any health effects associated with that exposure, but I'm just curious what... What are your thoughts with respect to the potential for health effects at those very low levels, Dr. Corsi? Yeah, well, first of all, I completely agree with what was just said, that there's a huge amount of uncertainty associated with uh, uh, the health effects of exposure to low levels of contaminants. That's, that's, that's the big uh, sort of question mark in the room. We know that certain people uh, do complain about not feeling good in buildings, and quite frankly, we've done a really lousy job of trying to figure out why. Uh, there, there, we've never found the silver bullet, as it was just called, I think. And I think that's probably because there isn't a single you know, silver bullet for many of these things. We, it may be mixtures of chemicals at, at low concentrations that cause uh, respiratory irritations and headaches and all of those types of things. So I actually wholeheartedly agree with what was just said. Um, I do think, however, that... Um, that as we've changed the nature of buildings uh, and we've ratcheted down on air exchange rates in office buildings and we've ratcheted down on, on air exchange rates outdoor to indoor in homes, we've sort of transformed buildings into an environment where, as was just said, outdoor air pollution and leaky houses and that type of thing used to be a major source of indoor air pollution. 
and we do have a much better handle on the effects of outdoor air pollution on humans than indoor air pollution. We've moved from homes being affected largely by outdoor air pollution in schools and office buildings to changing the nature of them so that the sources of pollution indoors is now becoming sort of the major source of contaminants as we've sealed up buildings. And that's one of the things I really stress to my students at the University of Texas is buildings are rapidly changing and the fingerprint of pollutants in buildings is rapidly changing. And we really have no idea, uh, and I agree with what was just said, we have no idea of how those changes are going to affect occupants in the buildings. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the toxicological end of things, epidemiological end of things. I happen to be an engineer, so I don't deal with those health science issues. I deal more with what are the contaminants that we can observe, and, you know, how do they, how how do we come in contact with them? Uh, but I think the health scientists really need to to sort of step it up and do a better job of of trying to answer some of these questions. So well said, well said, Cliff. I know you had a very uh, yeah, I've got a couple. Area you're very yeah, I've got a couple of areas that I'd like to explore with the doctor. I guess uh, your interest in moth crystals. Um, I'd like to kind of <laughs> chat about that. Why are you interested in moth crystals? Um, there are a couple of reasons. Um, uh, several years ago, I did a study of uh, elementary schools in Texas, and we monitored schools in a fairly wealthy school district in Texas and then down along the Mexican border uh, in a not-so-socioeconomically uh, 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 well-off school district. And what we found in both school districts, and when we looked for low organic compounds in the elementary school classrooms, was the paradichlorobenzene um, was by far the dominant chemical that we were observing, sometimes at very, very high concentrations. We just talked about part per billion levels. Uh, you can see this sometimes at part per million levels. So you, this is a chemical you can see at very high concentrations in buildings. It turns out that uh, paradichlorobenzene uh, is really used in about three major sources inside buildings. One is moth crystals, as you just mentioned. The other are toilet deodorizers, which was the major source in elementary schools, mm -hmm. the little things that you yeah, hang from right. the lip of the toilet bowl. Right. And then uh, closet, closet air fresheners that are sometimes marketed for use in baby nurseries to get rid of those odors. Um, these products are all effectively pure paradichlorobenzene. And as I've told my students, if I put, if I put that amount of paradichlorobenzene on my benchtop in my laboratory and I had a visit from our environmental health and safety department on campus, I would actually be cited for having an unvented, uh, uh, you know, toxic chemical on my on my bench top. It wasn't securely placed in a vented area, but consumers can buy this stuff and put it in their homes. And we've observed very, very high concentrations in some people's homes and in elementary schools. So we've been doing a lot of research, uh, trying to understand how much of this stuff is emitted from different sources, the nature of the source emissions, how it contaminates clothing when it's placed in closets how it contaminates carpeting and drywall, how long it persists in homes after it's been used. Um, and we've also done some very basic kind of cancer risk assessments for people that would use these products for long periods of time in their homes and find that um, that this anybody who uses one of these products, uh, basically paradichlorobenzene, absolutely dominates their their lifetime cancer risks in terms of inhalation exposures to chemicals. The reason I so asked, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the reason I asked about it is I've had somewhat uh, some experience with it. Uh, my family's been in the pest control business. 
uh, for a long time. And actually, yeah. we, we probably find less para dichlorobenzene and a lot more naphthalene being used for, for that. Have you studied that as well? Yeah, we have. We're actually out a student who's studying naphthalene right now. The, the sort of red flags in terms of health risks, and again, I'm not a toxicologist, but when you look in the literature, there doesn't seem to be as many red flags for naphthalene as there are for paradichlorobenzene. Okay. But we are studying naphthalene right now as, a, as another you know, moth repellent. Um, we found in, in our studies, when we compare our chemical release rates from these products with what's actually observed in homes in the field, and we took 300 homes that were studied in the 1990s in Houston and in, in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and Los Angeles, that roughly on the order of, depending upon the city, uh, about 3% to 12, 13% of homes actually use actively these products in, in, inside the home. So it is just a fraction of the population. Um, we, we found, interestingly, in our research that uh, the Hispanic community tends to use a lot more of these products in their homes. So the fraction for them is higher, but it is the fraction of the population is exposed to very large amounts of this stuff. Okay. You know, I, I think, you know, as far as the, the listeners go, I think one of the, the things about it's very unique is the vapor pressure. It's heavier than air, the vapor that comes off that. And mm -hmm. that's why it works real well as a fumigant for clothing. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's not water soluble. So, you know, if you put it on clothing and you don't like it, um, you know, you have some issues with uh, solubility. I, I think I'd like Trying to, to get it off. Go ahead. Right. I, I'd like I, to. I was going to say that. Like, oops. Go ahead. <laughs> No, I was going to say the clothing issue is interesting because it turns out, as we're finding, that if you have one of these sources in a closet, it can really lead to substantial contamination, surface contamination of clothing. And you can imagine that if you put on a sweater or a shirt after it's been contaminated with dichlorobenzene, you now have this covering a large fraction of your skin. And we actually believe that uh, as it desorbs from the clothing, uptake through the very large surface area of the skin that it's in contact with may be a major route of dichlorobenzene into the body. Just curious, before we leave that topic, for practitioners in the field, obviously one, you mentioned a couple red flags with respect to, to what to watch for. Is there any other advice that you would give practitioners with respect to, you know, if they think this is an issue, um, how would they follow up or, or what types of um, what types of health issues might they might be associated with this particular problem. Yeah, so paradichlorobenzene, there's some uh, literature that suggests that it does cause respiratory problems in people that are almost similar to exposure to environmental tobacco smoke, at least one study in the literature. Um, oftentimes, you know, we worry about long-term health effects, things like cancer, and uh, we don't really fully understand short-term health effects, especially, as I said earlier, for low concentrations of pollutants low levels of pollutants, but this is a pollutant where you can get to high enough levels when these products are used in homes that you do start seeing some acute health effects. I personally, um, I'm a pretty robust person, a fairly healthy person. I like to think of myself that way. I've worked a lot with paradichlorobenzene in the laboratory, and I've actually become sensitized to it. So if I get anywhere near paradichlorobenzene, I always get rashes on my arms now. And so that would be uh, sort of another uh, thing to look for if you're a practitioner. Are there people in the house that are developing rashes when this product is put in the house? Uh, are there people that are having some respiratory problems associated with it? 
Great. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, I'd like to kind of switch over to um, building restoration projects using fumigants such as chlorine dioxide and, uh, you know, what you found uh, in your research in that area. Sure. Um, after the uh, Bacillus anthracis, the anthrax scares back in the fall of 2001, uh, my research team uh, received a, a fairly large amount of money to study uh, decontamination agents in buildings. And, and the focus of our study was not on how effective they are at killing biological agents. And certainly if you add enough chlorine dioxide or other decon agents to a building, you're going to kill mold and you're going to kill the activated anthrax spores. So our focus was more on how do these decontamination uh, contamination agents interact with indoor materials. And the concern there was twofold. For many of these decon agents, you don't want them to be removed by materials. You want them to be sustained at high concentrations in air so they can migrate to spores, for example, and deactivate them. The second is, if they're interacting with materials, what types of byproducts do you form? Or do you cause corrosion of electronic components? We studied chlorine dioxide, ozone, hydrogen peroxide, and uh, methyl bromide in our work and we exposed 24 different building materials to those decon agents. You mentioned chlorine dioxide, and chlorine dioxide proved to be very effective at deactivating anthrax spores. I think it's used reasonably effectively now for, for, for killing mold in homes and that type of thing. But we found some very interesting results with chlorine dioxide. First of all, most of the chlorine in the chlorine dioxide we did find is chloride and chlorate on surfaces left behind as sort of salt residues, which is what you'd expect from it. But we also found uh, chemicals formed on almost all of our materials to different extents that were consistent with what you'd see when you ozonate a material. You get a lot of byproducts when you ozonate, and that surprised us. Chlorine dioxide shouldn't have done that. And we also found some pretty toxic chlorinated organic compounds formed. And these chemicals that formed when we used chlorine dioxide were of concern because some of them can linger in the building and they can be desorbed from materials over time, and therefore when somebody reoccupies a building, they're going to be exposed to these products. We have a theory as to why that happened. I won't get into the theory in, in detail, but basically the types of compounds that we saw uh, were consistent with very small amounts of the chlorine dioxide dissociating into chlorine atoms and oxygen atoms, very small amounts, and those small amounts or that small fraction of a very large level of chlorine dioxide in the, in the building would end up giving us the kinds of products that we saw. One of the other concerns is that the chlorine atoms apparently were reacting with some of the materials in our study and forming hydrochloric acid. We put copper-coated slides in all of our chambers when we were doing these experiments, and all the experiments were done in the dark, and we analyzed the copper-coated slides before we injected chlorine dioxide into the chambers and after to see if there was any holes in the copper. And every time after we used chlorine dioxide, we had a substantial amount of holes in the copper that looked like corrosion probably from hydrochloric acid. And so there's this additional concern, not just of the byproducts, but the possibility of corrosion of electronic components in buildings that are hit with chlorine dioxide. And I haven't seen anybody uh, sort of address this issue. I mean, there's certainly benefits in terms of killing biological agents, but there are also these you know, secondary issues that nobody's talking about. And 
and I think it's an issue that's worth talking about. Um, I'd like to talk about something a little bit further on this. Uh, there's a much older technology that's been proven effective, and you know, it involves the use of either formaldehyde via fogging or formaldehyde crystals uh, with hot plates, and you don't get the collateral damage you know, using this process that you get with, with the others. And I understand, uh, you know, formaldehyde is a carcinogen, it's persona non grata, but it just seems to me that there's an easier, cheaper way to do this and a way that's, uh, you know, that's effective. I just wondered whether you'd studied it or have any comment on that. No, we didn't study formaldehyde. You're right. That is a possible, uh, you know, decontamination agent. And uh, we were uh, not asked to study that by the folks that funded our research. But, you know, I agree with what you're saying. It can be quite effective at decontamination. The big issue, of course, is residual formaldehyde in the building. We did study methyl bromide, which, you know, used to be used as a termiticide. It's used for fumigating, uh, you know, vegetables and fruits and that type of thing. The big concern with methyl bromide is that it's pretty toxic itself. But what we found was it interacts very little with the materials. None of it sticks around very long. It's basically uh, dispersed out of the building very quickly. Um, and the other concern with it, of course, is it's a, uh, it's a stratospheric ozone depleter, so we don't want to use too much of it for other environmental reasons. But, um, but we, you know, it's also very easy to use, very easy to work with, and... Uh, is very effective at getting into all the little nooks and crannies in, in materials. So um, it's something that's received some attention, and and as you say, it's something that's much easier to work with and doesn't have all the secondary products. The major concern is the chemical itself. I, I think some rubbers like carpet pads and things like that were the only negative thing I thought with the methyl bromide. But you know, going back to the formaldehyde, it could be scrubbed out of the buildings. Uh, you know, potassium permanganate. Uh, impregnated materials and so on and so forth. I mean, you can get rid, you know, you can grab it and it's, and the other materials, you know, I'm not sure, I mean, you can exhaust them, but you can't necessarily grab them. But in any event, back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. And um, I, I, there's a couple questions that I know I'm I'm not going to get to them all, but a couple I want to get to quickly that I know some listeners will be interested in. One is uh, about some research you did on sampling for microbial VOCs, and I know you're not a big, um, you know, you don't do a lot of research on microbial, but with respect to the MVOCs, what practical implications of that research would you say would be important for people trying to do that type of sampling in the field? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, a number of years ago, I had a student that I worked with, um, and we basically reviewed every single paper that had ever been published on sampling for microbial VOCs. And our focus was really on the sampling techniques to sample for VOCs, my microbial VOCs. And uh, I'm not going to get into all the details of our analysis, but cut to the chase, that what we found when you look at the amount of air that people were sampling, the concentrations they were measuring, and the amount of adsorbent that they were using in their adsorbent tubes, as well as the specific adsorbent, was that they were easily exceeding the capacity of the sorbent at the concentrations and flow rates that they were sampling. And in not one case in any paper reviewed in the literature did anybody use what we call a breakthrough tube, a tube behind the first tube, to capture anything that actually gets through the first tube. And so our conclusion basically is that, you know, almost everything that's been published in the literature on sampling the microbial VOCs, at least as of about four years ago when we did our study, 
probably underestimated the concentrations of microbial VOCs because they were just losing a lot of it through the back end of their tubes. And I would really encourage people that do this kind of sampling in the future to start using two sorbent tubes in series or using canisters instead of sorbent tubes if they're worried about, you know, losing some of the stuff through the back end of the tube. I think that's pretty substantial. I think we've been really underestimating the the levels or the concentrations of a whole spectrum of microbial VOCs uh, um, when we when we publish those things in the literature. Okay, I've got another one that's kind of a hot-button item right now. I'm going to combine two. Um, first, I had a gentleman, uh, sent, he couldn't listen in, but he's going to download later, and he sent me a text question asking about your thoughts on the VOCs that people are exposed to in new construction these days and what he'll call the McMansions um, and, and a lot of the, you know, the, the newer types of uh, building materials going into these McMansions. Uh, how much study is being done on that? Do you have any general thoughts on, on things that we should be watching for and be careful with? Uh, you know, I have not, I am not aware of any research group that's actually studied, uh, sort of trying to differentiate indoor air quality in McMansions versus, versus maybe more conventional housing. Um, so I, 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 I don't feel qualified to actually address specifically McMansions. Okay. Um, well, let's go to Green. I do have, go ahead. Yeah. Pardon me. Go ahead, John. Sorry. I was going to say, uh, well, let's move on to green products. I know that you sure. have done some testing on that, and um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, what we should be watching out for with respect to the movement to more green products. Yeah, I mean, the green movement is real, and it's really affecting the nature of office buildings and schools and homes, and, and I have a concern that the green products industry is sort of racing along the highway at about 100 miles per hour, and the science behind green is following at about 10 miles per hour. We're just not keeping up with the growth in the green industry. Um, my team has been doing some research on green building materials, and we study them for uh, what comes off of them, the types of chemicals that are released from green uh, products, whether they be cleaners or actually building materials. But we've also noticed an interesting trend. First of all, many green products do emit less of a whole spectrum of VOCs from the product themselves than conventional analogs, conventional products that would be used for the same thing. Um, that's not always the case, but it's often the case. But what we've noticed is that when the material is in place for some time and it's been exposed to ozone, even relatively small amounts of ozone, the kinds of levels of ozone we would see in homes penetrating from outdoors or even released from laser printers in our homes and that type of thing, that you form secondary products. These are products that would not normally be emitted from the material or from the, or from the green product that end up being generated by reactions with ozone. And some of these secondary products uh, are of concern. Uh, you know, they're irritants. Some of them are potentially toxic. And it turns out a lot of green materials are natural materials, and they're full of compounds that we call terpenes and terpene alcohols. These are these come from essential oils. They come from linseed oil, uh, you know, which is used commonly now in green paints and that type of thing. And it's really easily oxidized or transformed by ozone to new products that that we normally don't test for because we. Uh, you know, just test the primary product and don't expose it to what it would normally be exposed to in a building. 
So we've been doing a lot of research in that area. I've had another student uh, in conjunction with a with a, another faculty member here who's been testing the susceptibility of different green building products to mold, and it turns out that some green materials are really highly susceptible to mold if you get them damp. Um, and so there are these these you know growing concerns that we're not sort of analyzing these products as well as we should be for some of the uh, products that they might be forming in the process of their use. The one good thing is that the U.S. Green Building Council, I think, realizes this, uh, and they're starting to fund research on on the indoor air quality implications of, of, of certain green products and even their oxidation by ozone. And, and I say that because I've benefited from them. They're funding some of my research. But uh, it's, I think, a positive that the people that are the force behind the green building movement are recognizing this, and they're putting some money into better understanding it. Okay. Well, let's go to what we call our roundup here, Dr. Corsi. We're going to go around the horn one more time. We'll try and get out of here by 1 o'clock. Can you stick around for a couple extra minutes if we go over? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We appreciate that. Move on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in. Let him out, cut him out. Ride him in, raw Okay, let's go around the horn. We'll start with Cliff, then we'll bring Dr. Wow back on, and I'll wrap things up. Thanks, uh, Joe. Dr. Corsi, why is why are sewers uh, a subject of interest to you? Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually started my academic career studying uh, the transport of uh, toxic chemicals in municipal wastewater and how they migrate through sewer systems partition into the headspace, that's that word again, into the air above wastewater and sewers, and how they're removed from sewers to the ambient atmosphere outdoors throughout our communities at pump stations and that type of thing. So it was, uh, I guess, an indoor air quality issue of a different type. It was indoor air and sewers. But sewers end up being a source of indoor air pollution in in many environments. My... my um, the best example, I think, are elementary schools I've been into, and I've walked into a lot of classrooms, and I smell hydrogen sulfide, and normally the source of the hydrogen sulfide in the classrooms is a uh, a floor uh, trap that's dried out, and it's connected to the sewer system, and so hydrogen sulfide and, and anything else in the sewer that's in the gas form can migrate into classrooms. Uh, it's a pretty easy fix. You just have to pour water into the trap, basically, into the drain. But, you know, they are connected to indoor environments. Every building that I can think of in our society is connected. Well, not everyone, not not ones that are on septic, but many buildings in our society are connected to sewer systems, and that's a potential source of indoor air pollution if our traps dry out. All right. Dr. Wow, do we have you back? Do you have a quick comment? Yes, I'm here. Oh, my. Uh, I know it's I tough to hear. Of, of, of comments over here. Can we in keep... fact, I just looked at a box of mothballs, which I bought because I have real wool sweaters, and the moths do like that. And I I read the label, and I'm not using it almost the way it is. But on the other hand, there are instructions on the correct use of that material. Uh, I have been against air fresheners for I don't know how long, because I don't... Uh, 
uh, they, they, they cover up things. And I remember in the very old days, and this is when I was a student 40 years ago, uh, some of the air fresheners not only had a, 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 a smell to it, uh, they also had a chemical in there which numbed your olfactory <laughs> sense. So in other words, you said, oh, my God, that smells good. No, you didn't smell anything. I don't think that's a good way of doing it. Um, uh, on the other hand, like I said, with mothballs and all these chemicals which we are using in our house and we want and we appreciate, read the label. There is a label there, directions for use, and don't misuse it. The other thing, uh, yeah, there is yet another thing. I don't know what is in deodorants, but our society, we are not supposed to smell from, uh, smell from sweat. I know societies where the smell of sweat is considered sexy. But we, we made a different decision. We have to smear that stuff on there, and heaven knows what's in it. But I think the one thing that nobody has touched on anywhere, why don't we teach uh, this whole, I don't want to say toxicology, but that awareness of this chemical world in which we live. We didn't need those courses 100 years ago because there weren't any. There was carbon monoxide, I'm aware of that. But uh, with all that stuff that is being around, we have high schools and we have great schools. We have biology classes. We have science classes. I think that would be an excellent place where we, where we can teach young kids about the changing world. We don't need to teach them any Morse codes anymore. Morse code is not needed anymore. A couple of ham operators use it, and I have nothing against that. Fifty years ago, we didn't teach anything about computers. <laughs> when we, there wasn't a computer, I taught in the School of Engineering how to use a slide rule to my students. So I think we are missing something which is relatively easy to remedy to uh, um, expose, well, I shouldn't use the word expose, no pun intended, <laughs> expose our students to these new types of thoughts that are there, and it is not very difficult. I can teach high school uh, students a little bit about toxicology and uh, what chemicals do and how they are absorbed through the skin inhalation, ingestion, and so on. I don't think there's anything wrong with a student knowing that if you inhale something that's for all practical purposes within seconds in your bloodstream, mm -hmm. so, and before it goes to the liver. Um, so I think those are a couple of things that we have to yeah, get a grip on, a hold on, and, and, and understand them. Well, thank you, Dr. Wow and, and Dr. Corsi. You are doing a little of that through your program. Am, am I correct? Did I hear you right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I smiled when Dr. Wow said that because that's one of the things that our students in our graduate program do is we work with local high school teachers trying to integrate that type of information into their science Wonderful. courses and in, in, in their environmental science courses. I, I wanted to touch on one other thing real quickly, if I can, that was mentioned was deodorants and uh, fragrances and perfumes. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand what's actually in those, and uh, we've done a lot of research here on perfumes and colognes and even hairsprays, and uh, some people might have seen me in the October 2006 issue of National Geographic where I was 
putting these different chemicals uh, on my face and on my hair and sticking my head in a box and exposing myself to very small amounts of ozone, again, the type of stuff you'd see indoors, certainly much higher levels outdoors. And we were seeing tremendous amounts of reaction products on my skin, chemicals that were formed when ozone reacts with colognes and perfumes. And we took samples of my breathing zone and saw a lot of heavily oxygenated byproducts, irritants uh, in my breathing zone. So effectively, if you wear those types of things and you slap them on your head and you walk outside on a, on a nice ozone day in the summertime, you know, your head will be figuratively on fire with chemical reactions associated with those uh, products that you use on your head uh, reacting with ozone. And I wholeheartedly agree that in the last 50 years, we've seen this tremendous increase in chemical use. You know, when you look at synthetic organic chemical use and production in the World War II years, it was essentially nothing. And after World War II, there was this tremendous increase in synthetic organic chemical use in the United States that we just basically didn't have to worry about before World War II. And what's happening now is we've sort of reached this second revolution where suddenly we're bringing in all of these new products, these natural products, these essential oils into buildings, uh, and we're kind of going through this second revolution in chemical input into buildings, and this time it's a different type of chemical. It's these sort of natural essential oils and natural products, and we don't really have a good feeling for for what they do to us at all. So I agree with everything that was just stated. All right. Well stated. Well, I'm... I'm going to give up my last question here, although I've got about five more here on my page, and I, I hope we can bring you back to talk more about uh, Indoor Air 2011 and also some more of your research uh, before the uh, big event, and that's what I want to ask you to do. Could you tell us uh, what the dates are, and I'll get them up on the website? Sure. The, uh, the dates for Indoor Air 2011 will be June 5th through June 10th, of 2011, and we have a website. Uh, the uh, the address for it is www.indoorair2011, indoorair2011.org, and we posted a lot of information there about deadlines for abstracts and when the registration opens and that type of thing. It's going to be a great conference, and I hope many of your listeners are able to, to come and visit us in Austin. Well, we look forward to helping you promote it. We hope we can bring you back again before then and, uh, you know, see if we can't uh, get some of the listeners to come down and, and join in with the researchers and help put some of this research into practice. I want to thank uh, our, our guest today, Dr. Richard Corsi, for joining us. I also want to make sure, I, oh, by the way, next week we have a return visit from Hal Levin, the um, in. The ISIAC president, don't hit me with the, inter the acronym, please, please. Uh, the ISIAC president, and I know, uh, Dr. Corsi, you're very involved with ISIAC, and this is kind of their, their conference as well. Um, so we're looking forward to having him back. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Corsi again. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, uh, Environmental Annie Koalecki for being at the controls. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.